So if you paid attention last time, which for me was about two hours ago, I mentioned that in memory this episode was really good. Upon rewatching it, it's kind of obvious why I think that. But as I was aff- I, as I was worried, basically this episode doesn't hold up under scrutiny nearly as well as I thought it would. There's some really good theme th- elements going on here, and there's some good character stuff, even though one of the character things is literally unintentional, and I guarantee it is. And admittedly, I have a personal stake in this because this entire episode is basically basically an allegory for nuclear fire. So uh, anybody who's watched anything I've done ever uh, probably knows how much that tends to affect me. Uh, the New Vegas thing, I talked about it extensively, to use a good example of that. So it's obvious, like I said, it's obvious why this, this one stuck with me, but... Well, this is a story by Lisa Klink, and I mention that because she's good at some character stuff, and there is some good character stuff in this, but... Um, she doesn't know how to make a plot that is well-constructed. And this is shown in basically every script she's done to this bar. Credit or credit is due. She's definitely shoring up her weaknesses as a writer. And this is definitely better than her earlier works. No question. But I'll get to that in a minute. So, uh, one of the interesting things... There was two problems behind the scenes for this episode. If you pay attention, Balana basically isn't in this episode. That's because Roxanne Dawson, the woman who plays her, went into labor during filming of this episode. The original setup had her involved a little bit more and had several scenes which were clearly going to be hers, which were instead given to Harry Kim. And, uh, like I should say, like two scenes, maybe one and a half scene if you want to define it that way. And so, and it's kind of obvious in hindsight looking at it that way, but like I said, she went into labor during the filming, so that was, and they had a, a schedule to keep, so they literally had no choice. So they basically just swapped around and said, "Here, here, Harry, here's some new lines. Go." And that's you know that's understandable. I'm not going to hold the, that against the episode, but that was one of the problems this episode had. The other problem is Lisa Kling's original script was apparently, and I'm quoting Brennan Braga here of all people, very dry. It was all basic, you know, intellect. It was like reading a textbook for scientific studies. And while there are certain people who will enjoy that, um, it was decided that was going to be too dry, you know, like I said, too bland for an episode. So they wanted to do something with it. Well, (laughs) the funny thing is you can see how everyone butted their heads into this one. Brennan Braga was a uh, a co-producer at this point in the show's history and would start to exert his own influence on the show in little ways. And the funny thing is, and I know this sounds like a weird thing, I think that was a good thing. Brennan Braga at this point in time was starting to hit what was effectively his stride, at least with regards to Star Trek. And, well, as I will talk about, as is more relevant later, Braga likes to to try out, you know, I've talked about this before, he likes to stretch out and do new things, so he was in in favor of trying to really push more character stuff. He was the one who went to Lisa Klink and said, you know, why not use this as an examination of Seven? Why not have her actually have a a spiritual type experience with this thing, you know, some kind of a belief system? And the line, there's actually a line I wrote down here, which is, is that theory or belief? What's the difference between a theory or a belief? And, And examining that. So, that's great. Then there's Rick Berman, who, um, is Rick Berman, who insisted we have more action. The irony is uh, most of the things revolving around the action are what really irritate me about this episode. Not the fact that we have action itself. I'm fine with that. It's just they're nonsensical. But, uh, I, I, you know what, I'm, I'll get to that. So, interesting concept. Janeway herself says that all captains are briefed on the Omega concept. Uh, that makes a degree of sense, actually. Anyone who's in charge of a ship any ship 
would be a good person to be aware of this thing after all. Um, it's just good strategy, basically. It's, it's good tactics. If you, you want to have as many feelers out there as possible to try and find this. So I imagine even people who are captains of ships that were, you know, lesser ships or science ships or, or support ships or transport ships, as long as they were Starfleet captains, were still briefed on this thing because they could still find it. It is still possible they'd go... I mean, space is big, right? I mean, pretty damn big. So having as many people out there as possible aware of Omega and capable of looking for it makes a lot of sense, right? But one of the things I find interesting is Janeway herself goes out of her way to show in her character interactions, and I said, like I said, good character stuff, she doesn't really know what she's doing here, and she's not fully prepared to do it, and she's obviously overwhelmed by the enormity of the situation that's on her shoulders. As I like to say, the best way you can know how much you know is knowing that you don't know anything at all. And Janeway, I feel, as the science officer, knows just enough about Omega to know that she doesn't know the full extent of how bad it could be. And that terrifies her. Her obvious fear to this thing is blatant throughout this episode. And again, the World War II you know, atom bomb allegory is pretty obvious there. They even mention this in the episode because screw subtlety, right? Although they mentioned the Genesis device, too, which is another good allegory, I think, all things considered, and arguably a worse one, but I digress. One of the things I mentioned this for, though, it would have been more interesting, I feel, if Janeway had not actually been aware of Omega. If this thing had popped up, and Janeway's like, huh? You know. Now, I know what I just said about all captains learning it, but as I've said before, one of the things I really feel would have worked well is if Janeway had never been the captain that she had been the science officer, or the first officer, or something like that. And she took command because she was the highest-ranking Starfleet person, even though the more experienced commander and captain was Chakotay. Now, this is one of the reasons I did this, and yes, I planned this in advance, because that's how I do my writing. Remember I mentioned that all the way back in the beginning, how I felt like Chakotay should have been the actual person who was, the, you know, basically the, going to be the leader, and the two of them would jointly basically be captain, but Chakotay would always be the one who is more the captain than her, whereas she is more the science officer than him. You know, that kind of a dynamic. This is one of the ways this would have paid off. Janeway would have no idea what Omega is, but Chakotay would, because my version of Chakotay rebelled and joined the Maquis after he'd become a captain. And so he would understand the severity of the situation, and he would be able to approach it with the cold calculus and the logic necessary, and he would have the reactions that she has. Now, I also feel like that would fundamentally change the first act of the uh, show, but that's a good time to talk about that, isn't it? Because I feel the first act of this episode is a little bit flawed. And yet, it works brilliantly, unintentionally. The flaw is that as Janeway herself points out, this is unusual circumstance. Omega particles are supposed to be dealt with a team of people whose entire job, I bet, is just to do that. By the way, that's got to be the worst job ever. You do literally nothing every year, year after year, hoping you never get called in. Because if you ever get called onto the job, it's so bad that it may be the worst thing that ever happens to anyone in human history. <laughs> but, you know... That's also kind of horrible because your job is to sit around doing nothing except probably running simulations every now and again to keep yourself up on policies and try to figure out new ways to deal with the problem, right? It's got to be the most horrifying form of, of, of uh, boredom tension, as I like to call it. You know, when you, you're something that's very tense and if you screw up, it's terrible, but it's so repetitive and mind-numbing that it's effectively boring. But you can't actually relax while doing it. You, you see the difference there? Anyways, so given that circumstance... You know, it, it, it's, it, it, the first pact, it feels like it's trying to pad it out a little bit with her maintaining this mystery. 
And then, you know, finally, okay, fine, I'll trust the crew because I don't, you know, I'm not sure I can deal with this myself, and, you know, the circumstances are different, I have to be adaptable, blah, blah, blah. All of that stuff makes sense. In fact, it makes so much sense, it makes you wonder why she didn't make the decision immediately. But then Mulgrew, Kate Mulgrew, does something really good with this. She shows a lot of subtle emotion in her face and in her tone in this episode. And one of the things that's funny is I'm going to be talking about the unintentional Janeway arc many times over the next several episodes, including into uh, uh, Season 5, for that matter. And I've talked about it before, for that matter. But I do keep stressing that unintentional word. There was never an intentional plot arc for Janeway, ever. It was just one that happened by coincidence. But the thing is, it's not fully coincidence because Kate Mulgrew herself actually believed in this character arc and basically played her character as if that's where her character was going. It was her interpretation of her character that that's what was happening to Janeway. So I feel it's still valid. It's not just a fan theory, ignoring the fact that it fits almost perfectly. That unintentional arc is that Janeway is basically not command material. I'll talk about this more later, but the idea is that... Well, I've talked about this many times before, so forgive me for the repetition. God, all I do is repeat myself on the show. I'm sorry, guys. Some people, when they go through horrible, horrible circumstances, rise to the occasion and show how, you know, show what they can really do, show, show their chops. Other people are crushed by it. When you are a captain, when you are a commander, when you are in charge militarily or governmentally, you have to make hard decisions. And you don't have the luxury of going ahead and saying, I'm going to go ahead and put my life on the line rather than my people's because I feel guilty. You don't get that luxury if you're in charge. You get to handle the burden of ordering someone else to die. That's part of what being a good leader means, and it sucks, but it's true. We saw this back in TNG, actually. I forget the name of the episode, but Troy had to handle that thing. Troy had to handle ordering Jordy to his death. That's harder to do than it sounds. In fact, it's horrible. It's, it's soul-crushing. And it's why being a leader is such a terrible thing, because when the chips are down, you have to make those hard choices. And it's not just, you know, like in a lot of games, is, uh, a lot of games have moral choice situations and dilemma things. It's not like distant, distant faces, you know. It's not like whether or not do I destroy these people in order to save these people. You know, that, that's certainly bad stuff. But I'm talking about looking at someone who you've been working with for years and have probably developed a professional relationship with and may even be friends with. And you got to turn to that person and say, I want you to go in there and die because I need you to. That's what being a leader really is about, right? There's an episode, uh, I forget one, it's in the Zindi arc in Enterprise, where Archer shows how he fails to rise to the occasion in this same manner. He puts himself, I think it's uh, Minefield, actually, I could be wrong about that. He puts himself at risk. He puts himself at damage. He risks everything as far as the crew and their mission and whatnot because he feels guilty, because he can no longer take what he had been forced to do as a leader. Now, I'm not saying that's actually a bad thing, and I'll talk about that whenever I finally talk about Enterprise, but the point is, it's a good example of what's happening with Janeway here. Like I said, this was all clearly unintentional, but why else would Janeway do this? Trapped, alone, no help, deciding to force the crew to help her in this matter and then go off on her alone, even knowing her odds of success are not even 50%. And that's her mission, and she'll be the one to do it. That is the wrong call. 
and I'm sorry to say it that way, but from a tactical perspective, from a strategic perspective, from the perspective of a captain, that is entirely the wrong call. But she makes it because she's showing that burden. She's showing how much this burden of leadership has been breaking her down and how much she's not being able to handle it. It takes Chakotay coming to her face to face and hitting her with cold logic, of all things, about the tactical situation that, says, that finally convinces her. Because he can't reach her from the other perspective. He can't say, we're your family. He can't say, we're your friends. Because that makes it worse, doesn't it? So this episode is an unintentional continuation of Janeway's arc. And that's great stuff. It is also an intentional continuation of Seven's arc. But let, let's, let's pause on that for a moment. So um, let's go ahead and talk about a couple things here. Now, the Borg failed to stabilize Omega. In fact, everyone's failed to stabilize Omega. Okay. Um, the Borg also took significant efforts and work and significant amount of time in assimilating 13 species just to synthesize one Omega molecule and have never successfully done so since. Okay? This is part of what I mean with the, the plot not really making a lot of sense because you have to keep that in mind when you understand that an alien race manages to do this and actually make millions of Omega Molecules. Millions! Which, by the way, only damage subspace in an extremely small space, even though a few million Omega Molecules should probably take out half the Quadrant, as they keep mentioning. But they don't, for some reason. I, you know, there's, there's a logical disconnect there. But there's another logical disconnect. These aliens are a pre-warp civilization. They make several mention of that fact, actually. A pre-warp civilization has successfully synthesized lots of Omega Particles. Alright, you know what? I'll be fair. I'll be kind. Sure. Maybe they just hadn't gotten around to studying, you know, warp drive or whatnot. Maybe if we were to really theorycraft the reason they are incapable, they're, they're pre-warp, is because they literally can't go to warp because of the whole, you know, subspace already damaged in this region for the same reason that they're working on Omega Molecules. In other words, maybe one Omega mo Molecule was naturally synthesized in this area, and that's why they can't go to warp. And then that led them to this research. So, okay, fine. If we really work our way around it, we can make it work. But then there's two other things that bug me about that. Number one, the alien encounters uh, aliens, a.k.a. us, and is completely just blasé about the whole thing. I want you to imagine what would have happened if uh, Albert Einstein and all the others, I can't think of the name of the guy I really wanted to talk about, the, the real big head when it came to the atom, you know, all, all, all those kids. excuse me for not remembering their names, I'm an idiot, were um, sitting around working on making the A-bomb, and then a bunch of, you know, different-looking people beamed down and started discussing, oh, my God, you're working on the A-bomb. We need to stop this immediately. Do you think... I, I mean, and, and there, do you think they would have absolutely no reaction to the sudden realization that there are aliens? Okay, I know what you're going to say. We can talk around this one, too. Maybe they already know other aliens exist. Okay. Um, possible. That's getting to be a bit more of a stretch because, again... Warp travel, right? Lack of warp travel. So that means, uh, and and this region was already well. Okay, we don't know if this region was already stable, destabilized. But if we're arguing that it was already destabilized, then that means anyone trying to reach them would not be going at warp travel. So their most their contact with alien races would be basically generation ships or super super slow ships of dumb, basically. So we're starting to see some cracks in the plot. Then the alien ships show up because they have spaceships. Uh, sorry for the pause there. I had. To, uh, 
bit of a phone call situation. I'm, yeah. Anyways, um, so maybe the aliens uh, just happen to have, uh, you know, they have ships because, you know, I mean, we have ships, right? We have spaceships in the modern era. So, and we're, we're a pre-warp society. So that, that makes a degree of sense. Okay, why do these ships threaten the Voyager? Now, I know what you're going to say. Well, Voyager's not a warship. Yeah, whatever. I'm, I don't believe that, but whatever. We'll, we'll go and go with it. It's still a Federation starship, an advanced Federation starship of fairly modern technology that is uh, being threatened by non-warp-capable ships. I mean, I'm sorry, does anyone remember back in TNG where there was the... Uh, there were the alien ships, which had warp travel, I feel like pointing out, that had weapons so pathetic that they couldn't even penetrate the navigational deflectors of the Enterprise-D. For those of you not fully aware, I talked about this back in Yearfield. Nav navigational deflectors are exactly what they sound like. They keep the random debris of space and the random energy and radiation of space from penetrating into the ship. It's basic stuff and the kind of thing that is fundamentally required for ships that, that move around at the speeds they do. So, you know, basic stuff, right? Very logical. Um, so, I mean... Is, am I the only one that this really bugs? See, the thing is, though, the reason it bugs me is it's only there for one purpose. As I mentioned, actually two purposes. One is the action sequence. To add a ticking clock to the end of the episode. Which adds no tension, no drama, and does nothing for any of the character elements. It's literally there so we have an action sequence and for no other purpose. It's not even a good action sequence. The second reason it's in there is for the sake of one line. Which... Ironically enough, when it comes to Voyager, this is one of the most talked about lines I ever hear in Voyager. And I'm dead serious. I hear this line mentioned constantly. I've heard this line mentioned on my stream when we've casually been talking about Voyager. I've heard this line mentioned in my comments in some of the previous episodes. And that line is, for the duration of this mission, the Prime Directive is rescinded. This is the only time in all of Voyager that Janeway officially rescinds the Prime Directive. I uh, want you to keep that in mind for the season finale of uh, season five, by the way. I'll just go ahead and tell you in advance. There's a line where Janeway's talking to another captain, and, and he says, How many times have you broken the Prime Directive? And she says, Never. Anyways, we'll get there when we get there. So it just bugs me because it's, it's there for no purpose. It's useless padding that isn't interesting, that actually detracts from the episode and doesn't make sense to begin with. And you have to just worm your way around logically to try and explain any of what's happening. Let me explain part of this, okay? This episode has great tension to it in the first half or so. Why? Because I have a brain, okay? Omega particles destroy subspace. How do ships travel? How do ships generate warp bubbles and travel through warp speed? Thanks to subspace, right? How do we communicate across the vast distances that we do? Through subspace. These are both very important points because I want you to imagine a society in which subspace was destroyed in Star Trek. That society would cease to be a society in a matter of seconds. Within a few days, as everyone realized the full totality of the situation, things would go south very, very fast. Now, I'm not saying it would be the end of all life. It would just be the end of their way of life. And they would never recover. Because subspace is destroyed. It's not going to regenerate. It's not going to heal. It's gone. It's staying gone. This makes the Mass Effect 3 ending look like nothing by comparison. I mean, you think that's bad. You know, at least they still have comparatively sh uh, um, uh, uh, sh 
uh, slower. God, I couldn't think of the word. They have comparatively slower FTL drives in Mass Effect, right? So they at least have the ability over long periods of time to reach each other. In this, you could travel at sublight speeds at most, ever. And that's it. Full impulse in a direction and then probably just t uh, turn off the engines and let yourself drift the rest of the way for the next uh, bajillion years. And again, as I think I've mentioned before, the Federation is vast. Huge. The Romulan territory is huge. Cardassian territory is huge. It's, it's, most of the Alpha and Beta quadrants have been are known civilized space. And all of that goes away in a day. In a second, really. And everyone realizes it in a day. Some people who are even aware of Omega would be like, oh god, because they would know. All those captains. How would it feel to be one of those captains who's in mid-warp? Who just now realizes that the next time they'll be able to dock at any civilized society is in the next couple decades. Hmm? You see the potential for how much Omega will destroy the very way of life of Star Trek. If Omega went off on the scale that it could, it really would be the end of Star Trek. It would be a new thing after that point in time, because Star Trek would have fundamentally ended. That's why I say, you know, yes, people would live, but the way of life would be terminated. I mean, for God's sakes. <laughs> and I mention this, though. I really want to hammer this point in. Because it, it's part of what really helps the tension of this episode. Like I said, the first halves have great tension. Not just because of that knowledge, but because of the way Mulgrew is portraying her character. She, Mulgrew portrays Janeway as someone who clearly understands the threat of Omega and what it could do. And her fear of it. And Seven, uh, Jerry Ryan, clearly portrays her portrayal of Seven as someone who understands Omega and its potential and is in awe of it. And between those two performances, it's just... Yes. And then the aliens come out and just destroy all that tension. It's like, oh, and by the way, we're being attacked by ships of the week for no reason. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't change anything. We're still facing the crisis as if they weren't there. Pointless. So that's why I, I, I rattled on about that for so damn long. Now, I like the idea of... I've always said there's a huge difference between religious and spiritual. Uh, I don't want to get into that discussion because, as ever, it's it's basically not a thing topic I want to talk about in my show as one of those things that generally can't be discussed, only argued. But the reason I mention this is because a spiritual concept is basically centered around a belief concept, right? A belief system. What you personally believe to be absolutely true within your heart and mind. That's what a belief system really is, right? At least by my definition. So, and, and belief, again, by my definition, is something that's absolutely core and integral to you. It's not something that changes over time. It's not something that you are convinced otherwise of. It's something that is adamantly at the absolute center. It's it, nothing more core than your beliefs, right? I mention this because if there is one thing that could be said to be the belief of the Borg, it is perfection. And that has always been true, all the way back to Q-Who, really. And... I like the idea that the Borg would hold the concept of the Omega sacrosanct, basically. And that that would uh, transfer into Seven by simple virtue of having that memory. It also is a fascinating take on her own growth as a person. Again, not as a human, not as a Borg, as her. On the human side of things, humans have tons of beliefs, or mythos, or whatever you want to call them. And on the Borg side, well, they're always driving for forward towards what they believe is perfection. You combine these two through her, and what you get is this idea of Omega being the perfect thing. The perfect molecule. And, and, and the way Jerry Ryan puts awe in her voice at the end of the episode, for 3.2 seconds, I saw, perf I gazed upon perfection. 
you really get across that that was a, a huge, monumental, life-changing kind of a thing for her. But again, the core never changed. The core was always that belief in perfection, right? So now she has a way to express it. Now she has a way to feel it. And again, this ties into the overarching theme of all of season four, and we'll, we'll, get the, we'll really pay this off eventually in season five, I believe. We'll get there, I swear, of survival versus life. In other words, from a purely fundamental perspective, this is all pointless and drivel. The early part of the episode actually starts with that, uh, Seven looking at a lot of the things that she sees as irrelevant and pointless. But then she encounters in something, and it makes her feel a feeling that is irrelevant, a reaction that is irrelevant, awe, which is irrelevant. And yet it means something to her. It has that significance, which, again, is that whole life versus survival concept being brought up once again. And she acknowledges the value of such a thing, probably for the first time, all things considered. And that'll pay back again later, as I mentioned. Uh... I scroll down, scroll down. I like uh, how they they speculate. I like I like the Harry and Tuvok speculating scene. Why? Two reasons. One, it is an incredibly human need to be curious. I mean, it, it, some people have tried to define human nature as to you know what is most intrinsic to human nature, and everyone's failed because there is no such thing. However, if there was thing that was like the the majority shareholder of human nature, I would argue it is curiosity. And so if you're suddenly told to do kind of strange orders and you're told we're not telling you why and we're never going to tell you why, just do your orders and, and shut up, it is almost impossible for you not to speculate. It is actually the brain's nature to take lack of input and generate output. This is, this is true on a fundamental chemical level. If you are deprived input in a sensory deprivation chamber or uh, deprived of outside interaction for extended periods of time, your brain will literally create things for it to interact with. It is our absolute nature, right? On a chemical level. So I love the fact that they showed that these people are speculating. And and the funny thing about it is Tuvok, I, I feel like Tuvok could have been played a little bit lighter here, but I think Tim Rouse does a good job of playing Tuvok as someone who understands and is just trying to do his job because his final line is great. Harry Kim says, are you curious? And Tuvok says, yes. And he says it with em emphasis, yes. As in, Tuvok is just as curious and just as speculative as Harry is, but Tuvok is dealing with it in his own Vulcan way. Rather than allowing that speculation to run wild, he is reining it in through discipline and focusing on his work. Just, again, good character stuff. Good character stuff between the two of them. Um, and I talked about that. Uh... And there's that great quote, which I already talked about. Is that a theory or belief? I already talked about that quote. I don't really have anything else to add about that. Um, the usage of the aliens, which is dumb. The Omega naturally stabilizes so Seven could look at it. And that's why it does. It, it does it because of the plot, so that Seven can gaze upon perfection. I don't mind that. It's nonsensical, but I'm okay with it because it did something with it. It was there for a purpose. I talked about this in my last episode, too. You know, If you're going to do something stupid, do something with it. And that was all there for Seven's character growth. So, okay, I'm with that. Then, there's one last thing I have to I have to niggle on because this just this whole episode has a lot of really niddle little flaws and I didn't want to notate all of them. I started to and then I stopped, but this one bothered me. They need to get out of here as soon as they detonate the omega particles. So there's a get ready for maximum warp as soon as we get it. Okay, and it happens. Detonate quick, warp away, yeah. And the very next line is we're at warp one. Warp one is not maximum warp. 
By some scales, warp one is literally light speed. So, um, that's really, really slow, actually. <laughs> Final notes before I cut this off here. Obviously, if I was rewriting this episode, I would just eject the aliens entirely, make the Omega thing being a naturally occurring phenomenon with the area. It was a natural uh, stabilization which caused the destruction, but then that natural stabilization was occurring like with a rhythmic value, which is why Seven was like, oh my god, look, it's beautiful. And that would lead to more conflict between Seven and Janeway. In other words, she feels like if they studied why Omega is occasionally naturally stabilizing, they could then permanently stabilize it and actually genuinely synthesize Omega. Janeway naturally is absolutely terrified of that because, as I mentioned, she's being crumbled by the weight of her, uh, her, 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 her command and her ability to function which is what I'm having trouble with right now. But also uh, the, the fundamental flaw of that is if anything goes wrong, we have just screwed over everyone forever. Again, the whole destruction of subspace thing. You've already got the threat there. You've already got the tension. You don't need random aliens. The final thing I would do with it, though, is I would keep the scene with Seven seeing the stabilization in her final moments. Yeah, we do this, and then stabilize, and she gets us to gaze at it, and then she has to run. And then that has the, the life-changing impact on her and the realization of, of the value of things that are non-survival, etc., etc. That's all I would do. So, good episode still, despite the nonsensicalness of the plot and the, the fact that the plot basically doesn't hold up at all under deconstruction. But nevertheless, I still enjoy this episode because it's still a good character moment for Tuvok, for Harry, for Janeway, for Seven. And that's all I got. Have a good one, guys. The data wasn't clear on why Omega stabilized in the last few seconds. The chances are it was simply a chaotic anomaly. Nothing more. For 3.2 seconds, I saw perfection. When Omega stabilized, I felt a curious sensation. As I was watching it, it seemed to be watching me. The Borg have assimilated many species with mythologies to explain such moments of clarity. I've always dismissed them as trivial. Perhaps I was wrong. If I didn't know you better, I'd say you just had your first spiritual experience. <laughs>